2: Hey, this is DeRay. I welcome to talk about 70 people. In this episode, I sit down with Carrie Blackinger. She's a journalist with the Marshall Project who covers social justice and the criminal justice system. She also is someone who was formerly incarcerated and learned about so many of these problems up close and personal. We talk about her history of work and the many issues surrounding prisons and the current pandemic. And my announcement for this week is that we just launched whileathome.org, which is a central hub for anybody who's been impacted by COVID-19. So it is for medical professionals, teachers, parents, people looking for jobs, people looking for health care. A lot of information on the site. Please visit whileathome.org today a set of resources for people it also includes a lot of the things that are suddenly free a lot of the platforms that are free fitness programs that are free because of what's going on right now we also are looking for volunteers so if you want to volunteer shoot a note either on the chat out on the site you can sign up for the mailing list on the site shoot me a message at deray at deray.com super easy but while at whileathome.com let's go
3: Hey, y'all, it's the news still inside. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Packetti on all social media.
1: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Way on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith Third.
2: Aye, aye, aye. And this
3: is Dre at
2: DIY on Twitter.
3: So we are on week two, week three, depending on where you are and how long you've been hunkering down of social distancing, self-quarantining life. And I think that this has been... It has certainly been an adjustment for literally everyone. (laughs) Um, What's been bringing you joy during all of this? Like, how have you all been finding laughter and light moments and happiness? I will tell you that for me, I have been partying to all of these DJs that under normal circumstances or whatever the old normal used to be, you'd have to like be in their city and have access to the right party or have tickets to the right thing to be able to go and hear people like D nice and Manny fresh and quest love spin records. And here they are on Instagram live for all of us to be able to party and come together. So I have been getting my whole life at club quarantine and all of the other Instagram live clubs, (laughs) but how about y'all?
4: So, you know, we zoom every week for those who don't know, we're not in the same place when we record. So I'm on Zoom with y'all every week and and it's like a joy because we always catch up before we get into the show. But something unexpected in a way that I don't think any of us anticipated, I've, I've really loved because we cannot go see our friends and our family, at least in my case, and I think this has been the experience of a lot of folks, there's been a different level of of intentionality in terms of like scheduling time with your friends. And so like, with different friends from like grad school or college or, you know, in the DC area or back home, like I've had, we've had these virtual happy hours, like people are calling them. I think there's an essay to be written one day about the way that this moment in some cases has like broken down traditional notions of like what adult masculine friendships look like or how they exist in the world. Because I think for a lot, a lot of times men don't get together without any without a sort of false pretense like oh we're going to watch the game or oh we're going to you know go get some wings or oh we're going to and it's been interesting cuz like a lot of my groups of male friends have been like let's get on Zoom and like check in with each other which is amazing and phenomenal and also like a lot of friends who other who like wouldn't operate in that way like our our notions and tones around what friendship is and like the notion that like just staying in touch and seeing each other and catching up and checking in that that is enough that it doesn't have to be tied into some other event i think that's been really wonderful and joyful and heartening and also is one you know there's going to be a lot to be said about things that continue on after this moment whenever this moment ends and things that are different but one thing that is true is i think that for some friends who i otherwise like had never zoomed or facetimed Even if I hadn't seen them for a while, I think that this this is something that will continue, and that's been bringing me a lot of joy. And I'm sorry it took a pandemic for that to happen, but uh, the level of intentionality with which friendships are moving in the world is, I think, a small uh, sliver of light in an otherwise dark time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, a couple of things. First, like you said, Brittany, being able to attend virtual clubs, right? A virtual DJ, like with Manny Fresh, being able to spin live, like some of the jams that like I grew up to and seeing folks in the comments who like I know, right? Who are also attending and like watching at the same time and commenting. It creates this sense of community, even if we can't all be in the same place. So that's been cool. I think the second thing has been just like watching some wild and ridiculous and sometimes like really upbeat and fun shows. So, I mean, first and foremost, there is Tiger King, (laughs) which, you know, I don't know if you all have had a chance to start watching Tiger King, but it is wild and a story I had no idea about and like a whole world that I didn't know about, but totally, I guess, makes sense uh, in in the sense that like who else is owning these massive tigers and lions and and doing all of that, but if you haven't watched it, it's just like a wild story. And then some of the more like fun TV shows that have come out on like Netflix and Amazon, I just started watching uh, Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, which is like a cartoon um, that's like set in like a post-apocalyptic future, but it's like fun. And there are all these like cartoon animals and like adventures and like the characters are people of color, which is like rare and like a futuristic cartoon show so like that's just been fun to get your mind off of all of the woes in the world
2: it's been interesting sam because i didn't see tiger king yet but lord knows everybody's talking about it i'm like who is carol what happened to joe who got married to who so i'm interested to uh i'm gonna hunker down we were working so hard on the while at home carol did it yeah we were working so hard on the carol dot i mean the while at home dot org site that that was like all i've been doing for a little bit so i was like hunker down but there has been a whole lot of FaceTimes with uh, with Tere and my dad and checking in on friends. And uh, Lord, it's a whole lot of Instagram lives going on. I scroll. I'm like, OK, it's like
3: every day, every hour. It can be 4 a.m. and my insomnia is wreaking havoc. And I'll be like, I might as well get on my phone and see who's online. And it's still like 12 lives. And I'm like, how, how, how? All of you all live on the, in the Eastern time zone. How are you still up and on life? I don't get it.
2: Yeah, so like that, that has been good. I haven't gone down, like, a deep wormhole of Netflix, but I have uh, Disney+. Plus. I've been looking at X-Men, the old cartoon X-Men. And I will say, Clint, I meant to talk to you about this. I don't love that, like, the mutants fight spend so much time fighting the mutants. I don't love it. The humans were the bad people trying to kill everybody, but so much of the cartoon is, like, the mutants actually fighting each other. And I never really processed it as a kid. And then I was watching it, and I'm like, I mean, I love, I love the cartoon, but I'm like, why do they spend all day trying to kill each other?
4: You know, it's that mutant-on-mutant violence that they try to inundate us with. They try to (laughs) send those messages about the hyper-violence of the mutant community.
3: And now, the news. So, obviously, we have been all dealing with the same matter over the last several weeks. Um, The entire world, in a lot of respects, has ground completely to a halt. And it can feel like we are all experiencing... A common ailment and crisis all at the same time. And to an extent, that is true. But my consistent worry, and part of the reason why I'm so thankful for this podcast, this group of people, this community that we have been building together with all of our listeners, is that in times of common crisis, we can often have a temptation to erase the existence and the experience of inequality. That because we are all in this together and it's easier now even more than other times to say, look, we are all part of one human family and all part of the same fabric, which is true. But that temptation can lull us into the idea that the kinds of inequality and inequity that people experience every single day has suddenly disappeared and that it is no longer relevant. The truth of the matter is this pandemic, just like any other global crisis, doesn't erase inequality. It lays bare inequality and it exacerbates its very worst effects. People who were experiencing inequality before this if they have not already, are primed to be experiencing even worse as we continue on. The New York Times recently shared an article about many of the ways that this is manifesting across the country. So in education, we see a technological divide that is continuously laid bare. Teachers have had to move to completely virtual classrooms. And suddenly, young people who have been experiencing the technological divide are completely left out. There are some 30% of households measured in 2017 that do not have a broadband connection, not even a slow one. If you also do not have access to a computing device besides a phone, it can be very, very difficult to get access to some of these lessons. To go onto some of the sites that teachers are directing their students to go to. So, when we think about the ways in which low income students and rural students in particular are being uh are dealing with this technological divide, they are experiencing a massive shift in their educational outcomes. In housing, there are lots of folks who were already living in uh, under-supported, cramped quarters. Everyone does not have a second home or a vacation home that they can go to outside of New York City and spread out. Not everyone had space for the family that they had before this happened. And a lot of them now, a lot of folks are having difficulty following these social distancing Guidelines because of their housing situation. In medicine, we saw the Daily Beast put out a story this week that nurses are literally being denied housing because of their exposure to the virus. Instead of being thanked with, I don't know, free housing, dramatically reduced housing, for putting their lives on the line for literally all of us, there are landlords who are canceling leases that are coming up, there are Airbnb hosts who are canceling reservations for traveling nurses, there are uh, landlords who are evicting healthcare workers and threatening healthcare workers with eviction and turning people out onto the street. And in labor, the heroes that people are finally remembering to thank even with an Instagram post are the people that society has continuously overlooked. Wage earners, restaurant staff, grocery clerks, people who we've come to rely on so greatly during this time. They should be thanked with a living wage and childcare not just a social media post. And that childcare is something that they're having even more more trouble getting access to because of the crisis. Many of them cannot afford to stay home or take time off. And some of them, when they have, have been threatened to lose their permanent employment altogether. And here they are trying to make sure that all of us are fed and are able to have what we need. And they can't even have us support their fight for 15 when we're not in a moment of crisis. I bring this up again to remind us that crisis does not erase inequality. It lays it bare and it exacerbates it. So now is absolutely the time, just like every other time, for us to be concerning ourselves with inequality more and not less.
4: I'm glad you brought this up, Brittany. I've been thinking a lot about, and we alluded to it last week as well, with regard to the all of the things that are now being done that ostensibly could always be done. you know We're preventing people from being evicted. And in some places, we're pushing student loan payments back. Um, folks are urging them to be canceled. We're releasing people from jail who are not enough, but some uh, in different places who are at risk, who are elderly, who have medical conditions, who, who are there for misdemeanors and all sorts of things. So we're doing a lot of things. We're providing people who live on the street with homes and places to live when we could have done that before. So so it is laying bare the extent to which a lot of the things that we say we can't do, we actually can do if we have the will and the courage and the empathy to do it. But it is interesting to think about the ways that this is impacting different folks in different ways. And like an important thing for us to remember is as much as we say, and we've, you know, on this podcast we're trying to be mindful of saying like stay home if you can. Right, given what Brittany was talking about, that a lot of people who are on the front lines of this, who are the grocery store workers, who are the nurses, who are the grocery store deliverers, who are the local government employees, don't have the option to stay home. And another example of what I was thinking about is for people who have folks who come, like clean their homes, or people who have uh, nannies, or people who have uh, people who come mow their lawns, and who are now telling these people not to come, or these people cannot come. Right, depending on where you are. Uh, And I think one thing that's really important that might not be intuitive for everyone is that I really urge folks to continue to pay those people even if they are not coming. So if you have somebody who comes to clean your house every week, you have somebody who comes to clean your house every other week, it is very, very important to continue to pay that person even if they are not going to come uh, because those are the folks who are often living on the edge. Those are the folks who are living uh, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, those are the folks who are who are most vulnerable and who, without that income that they've come to rely on from you, uh, that could mean unpaid rent. That could mean a car without gas. That could mean no food for their kids. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And so if you have somebody who comes to mow your lawn, if you have somebody who comes to clean your house, if you have some a nanny who watches your kids who's now not coming, please continue to pay those people because, you know, everybody has different financial circumstances, but if you are in a position, you work a white-collar job, and now you're just working from home, your income largely hasn't been impacted, Uh, remember the role you play for people whose incomes are reliant on you and and others in your community. So uh, it is, in fact, more important to continue to pay them now than maybe it ever has been. So I just wanted to put that in people's ear.
1: Yeah. In addition to so many of those sort of economic impacts, there is like the health impacts as well that we're seeing. And again, there's not enough data being produced and collected right now around coronavirus in particular, particularly in the United States, uh, and in areas where they're not doing enough testing. But in some places, like in New York City, which has been a leader in terms of just the the rate of testing that's happening, you're beginning to see that communities that have higher rates of poverty, communities of color around New York City, are those communities not only where folks are more likely to be in a job where they have to go outside, but as a consequence, um, are more likely to be exposed to the virus. Um, so an analysis by the New York Daily News found that areas like the South Bronx, some places in Brooklyn, uh, areas like the far Rockaways in New York City have higher rates of folks testing positive for coronavirus than like Manhattan in areas that have sort of higher uh, amounts of wealth. This is something that is affecting folks economically. It's affecting folks' health. um, And it is not surprising. We see this in so many other uh, issues that we talk about here on the pod, but in the context of of this massive crisis, um, it appears to be breaking down in similar ways. um, And that is only, potentially going to get worse as this spreads more in the South, where you have larger populations of folks living in poverty, um, larger black populations, and governors that tend to be Republican governors that haven't taken the steps that have even been taken in places like New York to implement lockdowns and shelter in place that could actually protect some folks.
2: Yeah, when you talk about this exacerbating the challenges that we find uh, in the healthcare system and in general, I think about the rise of concierge medicine. This used to be sort of a niche, but right now it is a big deal that there are services uh, where you can talk to your doctor over an app or where... You pay $10,000, $5,000 a year, and you can get special access to a lot of things that other people can't. So we think about in LA, how did some of the celebrities get tested so quickly is that they were just paying a lot of money so that they could actually have a doctor who had different relationships with labs to be able to navigate that process. So that's interesting. The other thing is that since we launched the while at Home site is I've been talking to public health experts around the country, and I didn't know... That the infrastructure around data for healthcare is almost exclusively built for billing. It's not built for anything else. So we don't have good demographic data in real time about who is in hospitals, who is dying from coronavirus. Like the best data will come out months from now, which isn't helpful to stop a pandemic as it's happening. Uh, and I'm interested too in like what it means that there are a lot of wealthy people who are just fleeing cities. So like what happens? And Brittany, you said this. Like what happens when you don't have the ability to like go to your third house or travel to a different country or go to a bunker like how do we actually create an infrastructure that protects everybody because here's reality is that like when people are screwed over by things like this like they are put in positions where they might inadvertently spread it and you think about even things like hand sanitizer like who has the ability to hoard food who can't even if they wanted to buy 10 packs of toilet paper who can and can't do that and like how we actually the wealth inequality exacerbates the public health inequality
1: so, speaking about people uh, who have the means to leave New York in the midst of a crisis, it turns out that if they are going to Rhode Island, they are not going to have a good time. And that is because uh, this past week, the governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimundo, passed an executive action that creates a requirement that anybody coming into Rhode Island from New York is subject to a 14 day quarantine. They have instructed the state police to pull over vehicles with New York license plates and stop folks and then get their contact information. Uh, They're going door to door in some cases with the National Guard starting uh, this past Saturday, knocking on doors of folks who came in from New York and reminding them uh, with obviously the threat of somebody with a badge and somebody who can use force, uh, telling them that they have to be in quarantine for 14 days, otherwise they could face a potential fine or jail time. So what we're seeing is Uh, Even for those folks who do leave the city, in some cases, if they're going to particular places like Rhode Island and even Florida, which has a similar 14-day quarantine, um, they're being subject to a different level of policing and surveillance that is actually expanding over time. So after Governor Cuomo in New York threatened to sue Rhode Island for doing this, Uh, Rhode Island's governor actually expanded this order just uh, a couple days ago to impact uh, everybody coming into Rhode Island from all across the country. Um, Now they will all be subject to this quarantine uh, and surveillance by the police and potential fines or jail time. So this is frustrating. It's happening in a context where some places are actually easing up on policing and incarceration. Places like Philadelphia, where the police have said they will no longer be arresting and booking people for nonviolent offenses. Places like Los Angeles County, which is reducing jail populations. And then on the flip side of that, you have places like Rhode Island, which are doubling down on overpolicing, surveillance, and targeting folks um, just because they came from a particular place.
4: So I think it's just worth remembering that there's a long history of, of crises being used to enact additional harm against communities who are already at risk. And while it may seem like really sensible to enforce through law enforcement who does or doesn't get to enter the state or whether or not somebody is abiding by quarantine, we have to remember that the same biases and prejudices and stereotypes and wielding of power has the same potential impact in a crisis that it does outside of
2: it. I'm shocked about how, when the federal government fails, it puts everybody in these positions where they're making wild decisions. That if you think about how much pushback Cantrell, Mayor Cantrell, got recently for not canceling Mardi Gras, people are like, "How dare you endanger the public like that? You should have told people this is why there's an outbreak of cases." And she's like, "Nobody in the federal government told me there was a problem. Like, how would she know that there's a?" a pandemic on the rise. Like the federal government would be the people to tell her and like she wasn't able to make the best decisions for her community because she didn't have the information. And you think about like what the cost is of de Blasio waiting so long. What is the cost of Florida allowing the beaches to be open is that all these states are now in these situations where, like, people are freaking out. And, like, we've always said on the podcast that you get people scared enough and they'll agree to anything. You start the fear-mongering up and people will let go of what they understand to be their rights. The thought that the National Guard is knocking on people's doors being like, did you come from New York? Is so wild. But, again, you get people scared enough and they're like, okay, that makes total sense because it'll keep the community safe. And, like, we just can't let that happen
3: it's really important that we recognize what the difference is in the government's responsibility to keep people safe versus to create a police state that endangers in particular marginalized people. And when we talk about orders or recommendations coming from a mayor's office or a governor's office, that is about informing people of A, what the risks are if you do engage in a particular kind of activity, B, the rationale for why they are creating the kinds of announcements that they are, and C, resources for people in this change space, right? So we're asking you to do something different, and therefore, here's how we are going to resource you to ensure that that can happen. Here's how students can access uh, Wi-Fi hotspots. Here's how people can access the food that they might need. Here are the grocery stores that will be open. Here are the hours they will be open for seniors, et cetera, et cetera. That is very different than what Rhonda said for example, was doing when he just wasn't saying anything and the beaches were open and the clubs were open and the stores were open and everyone was walking around Miami as if nothing was happening in the world, the latter is deeply irresponsible. What is also irresponsible though is to come down so heavy with the fist that you are not giving people adequate information, you are simply giving them restrictions and then enforcing those restrictions with already biased structures we have to recognize that people are smart. People will rise to the expectations that you set for them. And if the expectation is we're going to give you this information so that you can make the right decisions for you, your family, your community, our state, our country, our world, that is a very different engagement than the kinds of things that Rhode Island is doing. And it's a very different engagement than the folks who have the information but aren't doing anything. And I think that, that distinction is a nuanced one but it's an incredibly important one because if given the correct information if given thorough information if people actually have their questions answered if journalists actually have their questions answered at these press conferences instead of trump treating them like they are campaign rallies then we'd all be better off and all be much more equipped to make better judgment calls
2: don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming
3: Pot Save the People is brought to you by
5: Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. at factormeals.com slash pstp50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your
1: subscription is active.
2: Have y'all ever been to the the grocery chain H-E-B? I literally had never heard of it before.
3: I thought it was HEB, but, but yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, is it is it HEB?
3: I thought it, it was like Heb, HEB, but I don't know, Chad. <laughs> We've clearly been saying it wrong. You going to the HEB?
2: Uh it's spelled H-E-B. <laughs> so I was fascinated because there's a story that's in the Texas Monthly about how they they plan for the pandemic. And it's so fascinating to me because it is a reminder that the information's out there that not only the government had an opportunity to plan, but a host of people had an opportunity to plan. Some things that stuck out to me about the story about HEB is that they have a full-time emergency preparedness team. There's a director of emergency preparedness. They have a full-time medical director on their team who is responsible for sort of thinking about trends and in in supplies and what that looks like. So they got information in January when things were popping up in China that there might be something on the rise. And they were getting information from Chinese retailers about what happened in the early days of the outbreak over there, how it affected the groceries and the retail sales, how it affected employees, social distancing. They had all this information in January. So they had already put together a plan. So by the time it hit here... They were ready. They had emergency supplies stocked at almost every warehouse. They had water and other things staged and ready to go and kept in storage facilities to make sure that if there was a crisis, they were ready. And the thing that got them really sort of keen to this is the H1N1 crisis in 2005 was when they started to take emergency preparedness seriously. But they, again, in January got it and were like, let's do something. They changed employee hours. They instituted higher pay for people. One of the things that I also thought was interesting is that Because employees who worked in the stores were being just like, they were working grueling shifts because the demand was so high. They called in for people from the corporate office to volunteer at stores. They had 800 corporate people volunteer across 400 shifts in their stores. They run a full-time emergency operations center that monitors products moving between the stores to make sure that people have toilet paper, sanitation, all these things. And the last thing I'll say is that they are actually partnering locally in Texas to make sure that businesses that have been hit pretty hard by the closures don't go out of business. So they're working with the food distributor there that's being hit pretty hard to deliver rotisserie chickens, deli lunch, and other products. They're working with the beer distributor in Texas to deliver eggs to their stores. Like they are really trying to figure out how to use such a big footprint to move things around. I thought that was really interesting to think about like how you have industries plan for these things so that people, customers, community members are not adversely impacted by the absence of things like Toilet paper. Now, I will say is that they even note that they were shocked that toilet paper is selling out, that like when they look at international models, nobody knows why. Toilet paper is a random thing that like everybody's buying and stockpiling.
1: I mean, you know, for me, this illustrates how important it is to be prepared and to have people who have some level of experience with dealing with something like this. So... You know, you mentioned HEB or or HEB, that they previously went through some of this with H5N1 and developed some systems and procedures that they were able to build from for the current crisis. Uh, And it just reminds me how, you know, the current administration is not only were they not prepared, but they were supposed to be prepared. They had a briefing to be prepared uh, when they entered office in 2017 and just put that briefing book on the shelf and never relied on it again. The people who were in that training weren't really the decision makers, they're no longer in power now. Um, They've since left the administration. So, I mean, this is what happens when you are not prepared, when you don't have experience. And then of course, when you have somebody in charge, In the case of this administration who just is like the worst possible person to be making those decisions in a crisis. But I think HEB demonstrates that it didn't have to be this way, that you can build these systems, that you can be prepared. Um, We're seeing in places like South Korea, uh, also in response to uh, some of these earlier epidemics like H5N1, had procedures in place, knew what to do, um, had equipment knew to rely on the information that it was important, that lives are at stake. And, you know, we're able as a society to organize much more quickly than what we're seeing in the U.S. And I think that that is something that is really important. And I hope that, you know, moving forward, that that is not lost on people because obviously, um, these things can continue to happen and we need people in power both uh, in terms of government and in terms of business and all, in every other sector who have experience, who are willing to learn and be prepared and who put people who know what to do in the right positions to make those decisions.
3: You know, for all of the people that I have heard justify a vote for Trump in the last several years, I consistently heard two justifications. One was that he ran businesses, and therefore, because he could run businesses, he could run a country. And two, that they believed that they wanted a change, that they felt like he could bring that change about, and that he would rise to the occasion. But this moment is a terrifying reminder of how problematic both of those justifications are, because his history has not proven either one of those things to be trustworthy ideas about him. One, he ran a lot of businesses into the ground, would file for bankruptcy, and then start something new. It's not as if he was self-made. He got a nice multi-million-dollar um, start from his family, and he discriminated against black folks while he was running those businesses and those real estate companies. He exploited undocumented workers during all of that time. He exploited women during all of that time. Both his effectiveness and his morals in running those businesses are not particularly good things. And the second idea being that he would rise to the occasion I didn't need a pandemic <laughs> to show me how ill-equipped he is to rise to important occasions, because there are plenty of things that he did not handle before this, and... We know because he disassembled that pandemic response team long ago and then tried to deny it a couple of weeks ago. Um, We know that the opportunities that we had to be prepared for such a time as this are things that he undermined long before this even came into play. And so if your idea is some kind of market based belief that a business leader can also run a country, at the very least, it should be somebody who is running things like HEB is, learning from the past and therefore preparing for the future. When we as citizens came to find out that behind the scenes during the time of transition between one presidential administration to another, that the former administration sits down and goes through scenarios just like this one with the incoming administration and that this administration not only did not send any of their senior staff to said scenario reviews, but also didn't follow any of the advice that the Obama administration gave during that time. It is very clear that they had no intentions of rising to the occasion in this moment, to the extent that private industries are actually passing up what our administration and our government are able to do because they have not taken the proper precautions. So I'm glad to see that there's an example of what this could look like and should look like. I am completely scared, though, that this is not reality for far too many of us.
4: So we've been talking a lot about coronavirus and COVID-19 as we should. Uh, It is central to the minds of most people in the country, most people in the world right now. But something else did happen this past week that I think deserves our attention and kind of flew under the radar, understandably, but is important to bring up. So Reverend Joseph Lowry, uh, who was the co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and uh, really a a civil rights icon, uh, who's often hailed as the dean of the American civil rights movement, uh, he died last Friday night. He was uh, 98 years old, uh, lived a long life, and his family says that he passed away of natural causes that were not tied to COVID-19. Lowry was born in Huntsville, Alabama in 1921. He was the son of a sharecropper and a teacher. He was the pastor at Warren Street Methodist Church in Mobile, Alabama. And in the 1950s, he met Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, who then lived in Montgomery, Alabama. Alongside King, he organized protests throughout the 50s aimed at desegregating buses in Mobile, and was involved in coordinating the 1955 Montgomery Bus Boycott, Uh, which, as we know, was the sort of watershed moment in the civil rights movement that ended segregation of the city's public transportation and uh, made Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference into national figures and into a national organization. Lowry's meetings with King, Ralph Abernathy, and the other civil rights activists led to the formation of that group in 1957, and this group, as I said, became a leading force in the civil rights struggle throughout the rest of the 50s and into the 1960s. He became president of uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference himself. In 1977 after uh, ralph abernathy resigned and he had taken the job after dr king was assassinated in 1968 when he took over the southern christian leadership conference it was an organization that was kind of rudderless it was deeply in debt it had members that were leaving the organization rapidly people felt like the organization died when dr king died but what lowry did was he came into the organization and for two decades helped the organization survive and guided it into a, a new frontier uh, that embraced more mainstream economic and social justice policies. Throughout his life, he was arrested for protesting civil rights, and for things like you know, dumping of toxic waste into predominantly black neighborhoods around issues of environmental justice, uh, and for protesting against apartheid in South Africa. Famously, Labrie was one of the people who personally delivered protesters' demands to the state of Alabama's segregationist governor, George Wallace, after the 1965 March for Voting Rights in Selma, uh, from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And he was surrounded by the National Guard who protected him from Wallace supporters and state troopers barring his way. Uh, 30 years later, in 1995, Wallace apologized to Lowry and Lowry accepted that apology. The Reverend continued his activism long after he retired from the organization, and he had a very internationalist and global conception of justice. And so he devoted himself to a wide range of causes, including apartheid in South Africa, including Palestinian liberation, criticized the sort of larger U.S. imperial project and the way that it destabilized countries and economies around the world, uh, and did a lot of work on criminal justice reform here. Something that I didn't realize, um, and I must have missed it, is that in 2006, at the funeral for Coretta Scott King, uh, Dr. King's wife and and a remarkable civil rights activist herself, uh, Lowry made a, a huge thing by criticizing President George W. Bush over the Iraq war and other policies while George Bush was sitting in the front row. And I went back and looked at that speech when I was doing some research for this and, and kind of going over his obituaries. And it's a pretty stunning moment because you have to remember this is the president of the United States at that time. And he kind of goes in on him and he says, quote, we know now that there were no weapons of mass destruction over there, but Coretta knew. And we know that there are weapons of misdirection right down here. Millions without health insurance, poverty abounds for war, billions more, but no more for the poor. He was also one of the first civil rights activists, uh, veterans of the civil rights era, to advocate for LGBTQ rights. Uh, he gave the benediction at President Obama's inauguration, who then in 2009 awarded him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. All of this is to say that he is someone who's not as well known as Dr. King. He's not as well known as even someone like Ralph Abernathy uh, or Bayard Rustin but he was so central to the founding of the organization that propelled Dr. King to be the person that he was. And he was uh, so central, he was a, a thought partner to so many of the activists in that moment and, and really elegantly transitioned into uh, a civil rights activist of the decades that came after. And he passed after living nearly a century and uh, I didn't want this to go by without us acknowledging his life and, and his legacy, which has made the world we live in possible.
3: Clint, I'm so, so glad that you brought Reverend Lowry to today's episode because it is critically important that he does not get lost. And that story about him at Coretta Scott King's homegoing service is one of my favorites. And it's not because it is the most important thing that he did in his life. As you so eloquently laid out, his life was full of important things. His life was full of critical achievements that benefited not just him, but all of us um, and the future of this country, But I particularly appreciate the elders of ours who lived incredibly consequential lives throughout their entire existence on this planet, that they never really retired from the work, that they mentored others and passed the torch and brought others along, but they always made sure to play their part. And I think like so so many of you all, I've been blessed to be able to meet a number of my heroes, Um, people like Reverend Lowry, C.T. Vivian, Dolores Huerta, people like Diane Nash, and have spent a lot of time with John Lewis, people like Reverend Lowry and Reverend C.T. Vivian, And what is true about all of them is that they have been G's throughout this entire thing. I mean, they literally never laid down their assignment. And um, I went back and looked at that moment, too, from Coretta Scott King's funeral. And then I went back and looked at all of the controversy because one of the things that happened was that him saying that became leading news on Fox News before the funeral was even over. So, Reverend Lowry, at 84 years old, after saying this, goes and sits down with Sean Hannity and uh, his co-host. And Sean Hannity wants to bring the great Joseph Lowry to task on the idea that you shouldn't politicize a funeral. And this is what Sean Hannity says to Joseph Lowry. He said, Reverend Lowry, let's be honest here. The president of the United States goes to Coretta Scott King's funeral and you knew what you were saying. I've known you a long time. You knew what you were saying and you knew you were taking a shot at the president. Are you going to be honest here? He said, you're going to be honest here and acknowledge that, correct? Reverend Larry said, "'I'm always honest, and my speech was the same, "'whether the president were in Atlanta "'or in Athens, Greece. "'It had nothing to do with the president. "'I was doing my job. "'I was carrying out my assignment.'" And that is the call for all of us to do our job and to carry out our assignment, no matter where we are, no matter who's in the audience, no matter who's listening. Later in that same interview, as the hosts were talking about this kind of idealized and sanitized uh, version of Dr. King that we have talked about so often on this podcast, Reverend Lowry reminds them, quote... Dead men make such convenient heroes. They cannot rise up to challenge the images we mold and fashion for them. Besides, it is easier to build a monument... Then it is a movement. And I think in his passing and in his stead, as he passed the torch to each and every one of us who are on this podcast and listening to this podcast and so many more, it is our responsibility not to get caught up in creating a convenient tale of who he was or the work and beliefs that he stood for, but rather to build a movement instead of a monument.
1: For many of us sort of younger folks, it seems like, you know, civil rights movement was so long ago. Um, and I think that this moment, Is just a reminder that so many folks who were around then and have fought ever since then continue to be around, they continue to be amongst us, people that we should be uh, leaning on to learn from, to talk to, and to communicate and transmit uh, some of that historical, that institutional, that political knowledge and wisdom that they learned from over decades. I mean, Reverend Lowry was eight years older than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He has been in this fight for so long and had so many moments, whether it was the civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid struggle, fighting against the Iraq war and, and some of the more recent injustices that we've experienced in our lifetimes. All of this rich history and these memories and this knowledge um, and these skills that were built over that time continue to exist. And we have to learn from those to be able to be equipped to take on the challenges of the present, uh, to build off of that legacy and to continue to move the ball forward.
2: I'll just say, uh, there's this one quote by Reverend Lowry that I'll just end with, and it is, we ain't going back. We've come too far, marched too long, prayed too hard, wept too bitterly, bled too profusely, and died too young to let anybody turn back the clock on our journey to justice. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod of the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Pod of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, Whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And now, my conversation with Carrie Blankinger, journalist for the Marshall Project, who covers social justice. And I learned so much about her. And there are some stories that she's done that have truly been fascinating. And we talk about what incarceration looks like in the current moment. Uh, Carrie, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People.
0: Thanks for having me. Uh,
2: Let's talk about your background. How did you get to even start working at the Marshall Project? Like, what was your path that led you to covering stories around justice and criminal justice and race and equity. Like, how'd you get there?
0: Well, before I was a reporter, I did time. I'd been um, addicted to heroin for about a decade, and I ended up in prison. And when I got out, one of the sort of few career paths that – didn't care if I had a criminal history, was reporting. So I ended up going into journalism and then sort of fell into criminal justice reporting by accident and realized that I, I was good at it, that, you know, given my past, it was really helpful to understanding how these systems work. I love it.
2: And you also used to be a competitive figure skater?
0: <laughs> yes, I did, I did. I did pairs, which is where the guy, like, throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. And- um, yeah, I was competed at nationals twice and very different from being a criminal justice reporter.
2: How did your time inside of the incarceration system, how does that shape the way you think about your work now?
0: Um, so for one, I think that I've come in with a background of understanding that incarcerated people have value and that their stories are truthful. I think that a lot of people, a lot of editors that i encounter in journalism don't necessarily give the same weight to things that incarcerated people say problems they report like crazy stories that they allege um they're not crazy like the so many of the really horrible things you hear out of prisons are true they may be difficult to prove but i know from being there that Just because something sounds crazy and unlikely and terrible doesn't mean that it's false. And I think I've come into this with an understanding of what is possible in prison and that, you know, people can be believed. And just because they're behind bars doesn't mean they don't tell the truth. Um, But I think also it's just been helpful in terms of sometimes I know what questions to ask. Like I know where the sort of gray areas are and where officials are maybe shading the truth or phrasing things in such a way that really leaves some unanswered questions.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, Was there a part of the incarceration story that you were... Keen to tell when you got out? Like something, you know, one of the things that I think about, I spend most of my time on police, and there are so many parts of it that I feel like go underreported. Like people don't focus on contracts or they don't focus on arbitrators or they don't like, there are all these pieces that seem really insignificant to a lot of people. But to be like me, who this is like what we study, these are like huge things. Was there something like that for you when you uh, returned from incarceration?
0: For me, the thing that was surprising was how bad certain parts of it were, but um, specifically like solitary confinement was so much worse to experience than I thought it would be. And it's been kind of neat to come out and, you know, see this, this thing that was, you know, for me, so terrible and terrifying, but to see it actually getting a lot of attention in recent years. Cause I mean, I got out in 2012 and at that point there was some, you know, organizing done around that. Like there's been movements against solitary confinement for a long time, but they've grown a lot in the past few years. And it's been kind of neat to see that. Um, But I also think that over time, some of the things that maybe I didn't think about a whole lot when I was incarcerated, I, I now see getting more attention and I'm like, Oh, wow, that really was bad. I just sort of like took X, Y, or Z for granted that this is the way things were. And you know, didn't really think about how much some of these things needed to be exposed.
2: Were you in solitary
0: confinement at any point? Yeah, not long. I fortunately was never in for more than a few days at a time. But even in that short a period of time, it was just absolutely maddening. Like you walk in, you know, I mean, it's the size of your bathroom. You walk in and it's like a neon white cell. There's nothing in it. Like you have, you know, there's a a little bunk and there's a little desk, but like there's no books. You're not getting anything to do. You know, there's a window that's high enough that you have to stand on your bunk to look out of it, but you're not allowed to do that. So you get yelled at if you try to look out the little horizontal slit of a window and there's no clock. You know, where I was, it was on like a second floor. So you couldn't even really see other people and you'd get yelled at for standing at your door to look out the window Um, it's almost surprising how quickly that can just make you lose all sense of, like, time and place and sort of whether you're alive or awake or asleep or dreaming.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the first um, stories that I read that you did that I'll never forget is in 2018, you started reporting on the prison in Texas, and the title of the story is toothless Texas inmates denied dentures in state prison. How did you even get, you know, I remember reading this and being like shocked. Like it was every emotion. How did you even stumble across a story like this?
0: So I, uh, I stumbled across that because I had started covering death row and I was meeting with some uh, murder billiard dealers. Um, these are people that sell like swag related to murders. So They're, you know, kind of weird dudes.
2: They sell what?
0: They'll they'll sell like toenail clippings from serial killers and just weird things like that. So it's a problematic industry and they're kind of weird dudes, but they know a lot of guys who are incarcerated. So I was meeting with them and like we were, we were getting like tacos or something and which is just a weird scene to occur to begin with, getting tacos with murder billiard dealers, not where I expected to end up in life at any point. But they mentioned that, oh, all the guys on death row were saying that they're going to get dentures. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a nice, happy little story. I didn't know they didn't have dentures. That seems messed up. And then I called the prison system, and they were like, no, they're not getting dentures. What are you talking about? We're not giving them dentures. And it was shocking to me because I didn't know they didn't get dentures. Because in New York, if you didn't have teeth, and New York's where I did time, so that was sort of my basis of comparison. Like, you did get dentures there. And I started asking. I started writing some guys and being like, "Hey, have you heard you're going to get dentures? Have you been unable to get dentures?" And then over the course of ten or eleven months, I wrote a whole bunch of guys at different units who didn't have teeth. And some of them sent me their medical requests. They sent me their grievances that they filed trying to get teeth. I got copies of the policies in the prison system going back like twenty years. I got a whole bunch of data about when they'd stopped giving out teeth and it turned out that what happened was they'd given dentures until like 2004 at which point they shut down the denture making facility they had on site um allegedly due to cost issues and then they just stopped giving anyone dentures and instead decided that they would put your food in a blender and serve it to you that way in a cup and that is what they did from 2004 until um last year and you know, they they gave out some dentures in the beginning, but over that time, like the criteria became a lot stricter, and it was like you had to be underweight and like starving to death in order to get dentures. And so, by the time I wrote that story, I think there were something like forty or fifty people had gotten dentures in Texas prisons that year out of a population of you know one hundred and forty to one hundred and fifty thousand. So clearly, like, there was going to be more need than that. By point of comparison, California, which has a much smaller prison system, like, you know, 30,000 or so smaller, um, was giving out a few thousand dentures per year. So uh, I wrote about that, and then a few weeks later, the prison system said that they would start giving out dentures, and then a few weeks after that, they said that they were going to get a 3D printer and start 3D printing them on site, which is very cool Um, It's been so gratifying to occasionally get letters from people telling me like, Hey, I've got teeth because of you. And that's really cool. But the thing with prison systems is you have to stay on them because at the same time that I get these letters from people who are so grateful, I also get all these letters and grievances from people who say that they're still not getting teeth. And I've looked at the data, more people are getting teeth, but you know, it's probably not up to what is needed. And certainly you know, with
2: the current pandemic, all that's going to be put on hold. That is wild. Uh, 3D printed teeth. I didn't even know that was, that was a thing. I know, right? Who knew that was a thing. Uh, The other thing that I was also surprised by that was a piece of writing you did was around Purell. And I had no clue that it was banned in prisons. I mean, I, I know now because it is, it's been a topic of conversation because, of everything that happened in New York and in the public. But how did you even like, how did you, did you, you knew that from your time uh, being incarcerated?
0: Oh yeah, totally. Um, In fact, in New York, they, they were so over the top about making sure that no one had any alcohol containing products that you couldn't have a lot of kinds of chocolate because they contain a flavoring called chocolate liqueur. It's not alcoholic. You cannot get drunk on it that they would read the ingredients and it said chocolate liqueur and you couldn't have it. And that's how strict they were about anything that could potentially contain alcohol. So you most certainly could not have hand sanitizer. And that's pretty common because, you know, it has alcohol and, you know, you you can add salt to it and you, you know, strain it through a sock and like separate out stuff and drink it. And in Rikers, there were also concerns about apparently they were worried you could light it on fire, although it seems to me then the question should be how are how are they getting lighters? In any case, I mean, this is broadly a rule in a lot of different prison systems. Although there has been some who have been responsive to concerns and changed rules at least temporarily in light of the pandemic.
2: And what did the denture situation help you understand about healthcare in prison in general? Was there like I can only imagine that there were other questions that that whole process led you down. How would you sum up health care when people are incarcerated?
0: It's not good. You know, prison and jail healthcare is well documented to be quite shoddy in a lot of different respects. You know, some places there's been a lot of lawsuits about people not being able to get access to hepatitis C treatment. That's been sort of an ongoing issue. Um, there's some prison systems that won't give you prosthetic limbs if you don't have if you don't have a leg, you're not getting one. I've gotten a lot of complaints about people who can't get hernia surgery, and they just have all these sort of lumps sticking out of their body that hurt, and they can't get anything done about it. I, I mean, if you wherever you live, if you just Google you know, jail sued over medical treatment, like you're probably going to get hit. You know, same for prison sued over medical treatment. And I I think that the denture situation sort of really highlights that. And it's a very niche thing that I think a lot of people don't think about. People tend to talk about things like infectious diseases and mental health care uh, and suicide prevention when it comes to prisons and jails. But there's also this whole you know, other array of things that people don't talk about as much, like prosthetic limbs and dentures and hernias.
2: I didn't even think about prosthetic limbs. You're saying if you don't already have it, then you can't get it. Is that what it is?
0: Yeah, it varies by system. Um, And it also varies sometimes by custody level. Like in some prisons, it's like if you're in a maximum custody, administrative segregation type setting, then you're locked in your cell all the time. So then they decide you don't need a leg. Or if you're on death row here, you can't get legs if you're on death row in Texas. So it varies a little bit by system in terms of what the specific rules are.
2: Wow. How would you tell us the state of incarceration today, given COVID-19? Like, can you give us like an overview of what's happening? What should be happening? What should we be paying attention to?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a loaded question. There's so much going on with that. So I think that you know, one of the concerns is that obviously it is hard to stop the spread of infectious diseases in prison. People cannot social distance. They are living on top of each other, often in dormitory type settings. They can't get access to some of the basic disease prevention measures that we have, like, you know, hand sanitizer. They may not even always have access to water or soap. Um, I'm still getting a lot of complaints about people not having adequate access to supplies. And on top of that, Prisoners and inmates as a whole tend to come in with more medical issues than the average person. They have higher rates of a whole bunch of different diseases. And, you know, we've also got an aging prison population because we gave people so many lengthy prison sentences that we've now got a lot of elderly folks behind bars. So we've got sort of a, a perfect set of circumstances for disease to spread. And I think that in some ways prison systems can be complacent about this because they're used to dealing with infectious diseases like mumps and flu and noroviruses. Like these happen all the time in prisons and they'll lock down the unit and they'll stop visitation for a little while and then it goes away and you know it's fine. But this is like a different beast and I think it's taken some prison systems unfortunately too long to sort of realize that and it seems like in some cases they taken longer than they should have to do things like shut down programming and visitation. And these are things that when you shut them down, like, of course, that makes prisoners' lives worse. But at the same time, if you have all these visitors coming in, if you have all these outside workers coming in, you know, that presents such a clear risk. And my fear is that out of all of this, that is such a perfect storm for disease to spread and for people to die, my fear is that we're never really going to know what happens. Because prison officials in many systems do not have a great track record with being honest. And now that we have no one visiting and we have no teachers going in, and we have no oversight officials going in, we're very disconnected from what's going on in that world. As they start to lock down units, people might lose access to phones, you know, and it might be that the only way that we can hear about these things is through either contraband cell phones or snail mail. And... That's sort of terrifying when you have this petri dish that has also become a black hole at the same time.
2: You know, because the coronavirus is all across the world, we're not the only people dealing with this. Uh, Is there another country that we can look to that that has dealt with this differently or better or anything?
0: Well, I think there's two countries that, that we should be aware of what they're doing, at least. One is Iran, which has released a whole bunch of people. Um, I think that's certainly something to consider if they're sort of getting it right. And uh, we're still grappling with how to handle it. The other thing is Italy, which had some, you know, riots and fires and breakouts. And, you know, that's what happens if we don't handle it well. And that's because their prisons are, you know, overcrowded, understaffed. You know, they, they cut off visitation, which, of course, makes sense but it is going to lead to more tension and you're going to end up with worse outcomes in certain other respects. I mean, these prisons could be a death trap or a powder keg or both.
2: Is there anything that people can do who are
0: listening? Well, I think that, I mean, obviously of course on your local level, you can figure out what's going on in your municipality or in your state. And, who exactly can control the release of prisoners or, you know, jail inmates varies based on where you live. But I think on sort of a most basic level. I think that people can just simply be cognizant of the fact that it does matter what happens behind bars. You know, people who are in jail and prison, if these outbreaks spread like wildfire in jail and prison, it's not going to simply stay there. It's not like if we solve everything on the outside somehow, but it's still going on in prisons, like we'll be safe. No, we won't. Like there are officers that come in and out three shifts a day. And we have to remember that there is a constant exchange of people with the community and that prison health is also public health in the community. I keep thinking that part of the reason that as a society, we've decided not to care about prisoner health is because these are so many, you know, poor black and brown people. And I'm hopeful that now that there's a chance that their bad health could impact our health as a society, like as a community, as a whole, maybe we'll finally start to take their health more seriously.
2: That's real. Now, I wanted to ask about John Hummel, who was scheduled for execution in Texas, filed an appeal questioning whether it was safe to convene witnesses for the execution and whether he'd be able to get in-person access to visitors in the days before his death. They wound up delaying his execution due to the current health crisis. Can you explain, like, is there something we should know about why this is important?
0: Yeah, sure. So on the one hand, we've actually had two executions in Texas that have been pushed back because of concerns about coronavirus. On the other hand, it's not just the people that are about to be executed who are impacted. This really impacts the ability of defense teams to mount good defenses as to why their clients should not be executed. And this starts like pretrial. The people that are waiting to be tried in death penalty cases, like their lawyers are going to have a hard time connecting with the witnesses who can explain that, you know, maybe this actually is a good person or maybe he had a really troubled childhood and that's why he doesn't deserve to die. So there's that pretrial. But then when you get to the you know end of things to the people that are imminently about to face execution or are trying to, you know, win an appeal, a lot of this requires in person interviewing. Like if you want to get the information you need, like if you want someone to trust you and and really tell you like deep personal information that could impact these cases, you need to interview in person. And now people can't do that. In some cases there's timelines ticking away here. This can impact Both in that it can have some execution dates called off. And I think we'll continue to see that for, you know, the next few execution dates that are scheduled during this pandemic, which there are a few in the next few weeks here in Texas. But, you know, it also impacts it in that it can make people who might be scheduled for execution in a few months, it can make it harder for their lawyers to mount a good defense.
2: Is there something that we should be thinking about that you worry that people are not thinking about when they think about COVID-19 and the impact in the criminal justice world, whether it is police, prisons, by like the whole apparatus of criminal justice?
0: I mean, the thing that concerns me the most, and I think that we will end up talking about it quite a bit eventually, is what is actually going to happen in these prisons and jails. I think right now we're all sort of understandably focusing on the big picture here, what this means to us as a society as a whole. And I think by the time that things sort of calmed down enough for people to really start focusing more on the criminal justice side of it and what happens in prisons and jails, like we could already be seeing some pretty catastrophic results in some of these places. And I'm just worried that we're never really going to know. I'm concerned that the average person may not understand the extent to which some correction systems cover up what goes on inside. And I'm concerned that we're not going to get answers in some places.
2: It isn't that positive that we are releasing people from prison and and it seems like that's happening at a rate that we haven't seen happen before,
0: right? I mean, it's all over the place, though. You know, this is, this is something that doesn't happen across the board. Like, there are some counties that are doing things to release people, but Even so, if we just focus on the most vulnerable inmates, which is, you know, clearly a good starting place, like that still leaves behind tons of people in prison. I mean, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, Texas prisons, has not said that they're making any efforts at compassionate release um, because that's up to the parole board. And when I asked the parole board as of last week, they said they weren't considering any sort of different criteria. That's like 140,000 people-ish in that range are in Texas prisons. And, you know, sure it's great that the the county jail here, the sheriff in Harris County's been doing, you know, great job advocating to safely release people who might be at the most risk. The felony judges here in Harris County have also taken steps to release people, as have the misdemeanor judges. But you know, the massive state prison system is not. So it's really all over the place. And there are places where we're seeing releases and there are places where we're not. But regardless Our numbers are huge. There's still going to be a lot of people left behind.
2: No, that's real. Is there a thing that gives you hope in moments like this? Like, what is the, you know, and so, one of the questions that we ask everybody, right? That like, in a moment like this, feels like the world's falling down. It is falling down in so many real ways. There are people who feel like they did everything. They voted, they called, they emailed, they texted, they stood in the street, they shut it down, they ran for office, and the world hasn't changed in a way that they wanted to. What do you say to those people?
0: I think that... The one of few things that gives me hope is that I'm hoping that we can see this be something that will be a catalyst for more change in the criminal justice system, in some of the aspects of it that have been particularly problematic. Maybe this will be the thing that can get more people to talk about the criminal justice system, talk about people in prisons and understand what's really happening in prisons and how that impacts people on the outside. I also think it'll be interesting to see if this amount of releases could end up changing the conversation about who needs to be in prison. And obviously we won't know that for a number of months until we see what the sort of impacts are on crime rates or not. And that might be really hard to parse anyway because it's going to be hard to figure out why crime went up or down or stayed the same when you have so many other factors changing, when society looks so different right now. But I think it could be interesting to see if this impacts how people think about who needs to be behind bars.
2: There we go. Uh, And one of the questions that I ask everybody is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you?
0: Um, Don't do drugs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Part 2 of the People. We cannot wait to see you again soon.
0: Cool, cool. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.